Let's take our Bibles. We're going to turn back to Philippians 4. We just have uh, a couple weeks uh, left in Philippians, and I hope this has been uh, beneficial and helpful to you. I hope it's been an encouragement to you. I, I again, love this book. This is my favorite book in the Bible, uh, and I don't think I've ever taught all the way through it, so I'm kind of sad to see it coming to a close, but there's so much information here and so much uh, applicable information uh, words that we can take into our lives and learn about how to live. You remember all the way back, uh, I think it was in January, February, we established a theme uh, in chapter 1, verse 21, to me to live is Christ, which means that every aspect of our life, everything that we are about uh, is to be about Jesus Christ. If you are saved this morning, if you've given your heart to Christ, if you've put your faith in Him, if you are dedicated to Him, This is your verse, me to live as Christ. Until we get to heaven, until we have the joy of residing and abiding in the presence of God forever, uh, this is our focus, this is our goal. And that means everything's surrendered to him. It means there's no other priority than Christ. It means that we're to honor him and please him in everything that we do. So our faith will be unwavering, our obedience will be unquestioned, our witness will be unashamed, Uh, We will be all about Christ at all times. Now, there's no question uh, that that's a challenging mindset. There's no question that that is not what we would qualify normal behavior because this is a new way of thinking. We've been given a new nature filled by the Holy Spirit of God. We are not who we used to be. We're a new man or a new woman. So this is challenging from the standpoint of our humanity challenging from the standpoint of of what we have always known, but we're told definitively in the Word that we can live this way because of the power of the Holy Spirit in in our lives. But for this to be a reality, for us really to live for Christ, then the two verses that we're going to study this morning really become absolutely essential because if we're not doing what these verses call us to do, there's literally no way we can act as disciples. If if these verses aren't ingrained in who we are, then then we're going to fall short. Because if you remember back in chapter 2, Paul says, let this mind be in you that's in Christ Jesus. In other words, for us to be like Christ, we have to have his spirit, which we do. We're promised that in scripture. But but we also have to think like him and, and, and talk like him and love like him and live like him. In other words, it's not just why I want to be like Christ. It's this, this kind of idealistic uh, thought that we have that that would be great someday that we would be like Christ, but it really won't happen until we get to heaven, so we'll just do our best. The Bible never calls us to that. The Bible calls us to live like Christ, which means the standard is at the very top, and we have to constantly be striving to achieve that, constantly striving to be just like Christ in every single way. And, and if we aren't doing that, then, or excuse me, to do that, we can't do that without filling our heart and mind with the things that are holy, the things that are like Him. Now, that's a real foundational truth. And I believe this morning that this is the, probably the greatest area of deceptive temptation right now for believers. And I think it's become the most effective strategy that the enemy uses against Christians. The battle this morning within Christianity 
is really not about theology. It's not about the foundations of what we believe. I mean, there are little things here and there, but, but we're really not debating uh, eschatology this morning. We're not debating uh, the sovereignty of God. We're not debating whether Christ died for our sins. We know those truths uh, as they are. And the debate really is not even uh, about the undermining of faith and reason. It's, it's an attack on the mind. It's the attack on what now is permissible, what, what the Bible says, how much the Bible really applies to our life. And there's been a, a, a pushing away uh, from the word, and there's been a broadening of what kind of uh, the word says, kind of a nuancing, and even in some cases a redefinition of the word of God within Christianity based on either what we want to be acceptable or what culture is pressuring us to make acceptable, so to not be seen as odd or not be seen as something that we aren't, then we kind of push the word away and say, well, you know what, maybe it's time to reason a little bit, and maybe it's time to not be quite so tight on the word and not be so literal. Now, this is happening within Christianity, and if you really study it and you watch what's going on, you will see this is taking place. Now, there's one problem with that. Well, there are a myriad of problems with that. But the bottom line problem is truth is not subjective. Truth doesn't give us the latitude to say, well, if I don't really like how that fits within my lifestyle or, or somebody around me doesn't really like what the Bible says, then I will make what the Bible says now subjective and I will kind of translate it into what I believe it should be rather than what it says. But the Bible doesn't give the allowance for that. God's word is God's word. God's word is not subjective. It is what he says. And no matter what culture tells us or pressures us to believe, we have to rest on the word of God. Because when we look at Philippians chapter 4, verse 8, which is going to be our text this morning, chapter 4, verses 8 and 9, you will notice in the words that the Holy Spirit uses that he doesn't equivocate in any way. He doesn't say, well, there's verse 8, but let me give you some other verses that will give you some alternative options about things that you can think about and dwell on. And he doesn't say, think about these things if you want to. Think about things, these things if it's convenient. Think about thing, these things if it fits into uh, your lifestyle and doesn't cramp your style too much and doesn't irritate anybody else. Uh, if, if you can make verse 8 work, for you, then think about those things. Imagine if scripture was written like that, we would be crazy. Because we would say, I don't really know what the bottom line is. I don't know what truth is. The, the great thing about scripture is it says, here's what you're supposed to do. Here's the standard. It's not open for interpretation. It's not open for subjectivity. This is the word, either live by it or don't. So he's not saying, think about these things if you'd like to. He's saying, think about these things, period. Now, we're going to study each word for about a minute this morning, but let's just read these two verses, and then we're going to try to break the text apart. So if you don't already have a piece of paper, you can lose the back of the bulletin, have a pen. Let's, let's interact with the text as we know is important. I took a bunch of notes last week. Uh, it just was a blessing to have my father here, and I've got three pages of notes. I love taking notes when I, when I study, Okay. Chapter 4, verse 8. Finally, brethren, notice he puts that word in there to remind us this is to us as believers. Finally, brethren, 
Whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is of good repute, if there's any excellence and if there's anything worthy of praise, dwell on these things. The things you've learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things and the God of peace will be with you. Now, as we said a couple weeks ago, verses 6 to 11 of Philippians 4 are absolutely fantastic, but they're also some of the most challenging verses to consistently live every day because they call us to a life, they call us to a standard that is, that is powerful but very challenging. And these two verses are really no exception because our mind, what's going on up here, and the heart and the mind are connected, okay? What we know, what we take in, what our intelligence tells us, and our heart, which is the seat of our emotions. And in the scripture, the heart and the mind are often lumped together because as the heart and mind interact, they influence how we live. So he says, the mind here is ultimately very important because the mind is in a very vicious, constant spiritual battle. There's so much information that we have to process and and, and we have to not only discern what's true, but we also have to discern what's important and we have to discern what's profitable to our faith and to our spiritual morality. And as we do that, we're, we're now forming opinions and we're defending our biases, even though sometimes our biases get a little off track and become a little unsanctified. And then there are these powerful forces that are going on internally in us. There's our desires and there's our emotions. Our desires are what we want, what our will wants, what our spirit wants in our humanity. Our desires and then our emotions, which is where the heart is, which is the seat of what we feel and how we interact and how we emote. And it's what, what is kind of our essence. Now, the heart and the, the excuse me, the, the, the emotions and the desires usually work in tandem, but sometimes they get into conflict, especially when it comes to living a sanctified life and walking with Christ. Sometimes our emotions and our desires kind of, kind of push against each other because our emotions saying, I want to do this, and our desires saying, I should do that, or it can be the other way around. So the Holy Spirit, here verse 8, gives us these eight qualities to dwell on, and we'll define that word in just a minute. But he knows, because he's wise and because he's truth, he knows that this, verse 8, is the key, really, to holiness and spiritual maturity. Because if our heart and mind aren't saturated with these eight qualities, not only will it infect us internally, but it also will reveal itself externally. That's why I called this message Inside Out, because what occupies our heart and mind will ultimately characterize our life and our witness. When I first started planning this series back in January or maybe even December, um, I, I picked that title for this, and I didn't know that there was a new animated movie coming out uh, next weekend called Inside Out. Have you guys seen the commercial for that? Have you seen the commercial for Inside Out? All right, it's a, it's a really... I don't want to use the word cute. That's such a bad word, right? It's a cute animated movie, very creative, about um, 
the emotions that a little girl is feeling as she has to move, I think it's from Minnesota to San Francisco. And the, move gives, the movie gives each emotion kind of a distinctive personality. So anger is a short little red guy, and joy is, I forget, I think she's purple, and she kind of dances around and has flowers there. Whatever, you'll see the trailer if you watch TV at all. So each emotion's got its own little persona to show how it's going to act. Now, I'm pretty sure that when Paul wrote this, sitting in a jail cell in Rome, he wasn't thinking about that concept put up an IMAX screen, right? In 3D, he had no concept of that. But what he's saying here really fits into this. Because as I understand it, I haven't seen the movie, I've just seen a trailer, the, the dynamic tension of the movie and what makes it funny is apparently how the emotions battle against each other to determine what is best. And of course, with any emotion, each one thinks its way it's right. And I'm guessing that we're going to see throughout the movie that each one has moments of winning when it's desire, whether it's joy or anger or, or fear or disgust or whatever, when, when that emotion is outwardly expressed through the girl. Because ultimately, what's in our mind is going to come out. We can restrain it, we can hold it back, we can show some self-discipline, but eventually what's up here and what's in here is going to be communicated in some way, whether it's verbally or non-verbally, whether it's in actions, whether it's in a Facebook post, whether it's in a Twitter feed, I don't know. It's going to come out because we can't constantly restrain what's in our mind. Now Paul says here, that we have to discipline and prioritize then what's in our minds. Because we can either be strengthened in our heart and mind, we can either gain advantage in the battle, or we can be weak. So he names these eight qualities. And notice before we look at each of them, notice the word in verse 8 that he says, dwell. Dwell. Look at it again. Whatever's true, Whatever's honorable, whatever's right, whatever's pure, whatever's lovely, whatever's of good repute, if there's any excellent, any worthy of praise. Look at the next word, dwell on these things. Now, the word dwell in the Greek is very interesting. It means to calculate, purpose, meditate, and give weight to. Calculate, purpose, meditate, and give weight to. In other words, this is an intentionally strategic action by the believer. When we look at the options, when we look at the consequences, the disciple of Christ literally does the math, says it's undeniably important to, to be guarded, to sanctify our mind, to protect our heart, to take in only the right things. And then because of the calculations, because of doing the math, because of the logic of it, the believer then takes a measure to only focus and only give value to what is holy and pleasing to the Lord. And that's the meaning of the word dwell. So he names all these eight things that we're going to look at in a second, all these things that we're supposed to focus our mind on, and he says because of the value that God places on that, because of the logic of that in terms of our spiritual maturity, because this makes sense, we now need to place an undeniable importance not only to guard our mind, but only to fill our mind with what's pleasing to the Lord. It's an extension of Romans 12, 1 to 2. I beseech you, brothers, by the mercy of God, 
present yourselves as a living sacrifice. And it is a sacrifice. It's a sacrifice this week to yield to the will of God rather than to yield to our own will, rather than to choose what we want to do over choosing what God wants. So present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable, holy and pleasing to God, which is your reasonable service. It's not irrational. It's not ridiculous of God to ask this. This is our act of worship. And then in verse 2, he says, don't be conformed to the world. That's our calling. That's our command. Don't, don't be part of the world. Don't participate in what it values, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. That's Philippians 4.8. So you may prove what the will of God is. First Thessalonians says the will of God is our sanctification. You want to know God's will in your life. You want to know how to be directed by God. You want to know what God desires for you. Then sanctify yourself. Consecrate yourself. Become more holy. And as we become more holy then, we gain the mind of Christ, Philippians 2. We start to dwell on what is holy and pure and right and true and lovely and of good repute. And then God leads us and shows us what to do. So we come back to Philippians 4, 8. Dwell on this. Get it ingrained in your heart and mind. Calculate and appreciate its worth and purpose with all you have to live by it. Now, in order to do that, there are eight qualities. And these eight qualities aren't just things that we're supposed to put first. Oh, well, I, I, I need to bring more of this into my life, and I, I need to think of these highly, more highly than the other things in your mind. That's not what he's saying. He says these eight qualities should be the only Things that we dwell on. They should be the only things that we fill our heart and mind with. So as we go through them, and again, we're going to take about one minute on each. As you go through them, ask yourself, maybe write it in your notes, how much did my mind prioritize these? Maybe even want to give it a percentage on the side. How much, how much is this important to me? And we'll all say 100% because we love the Lord, but how much am I really prioritizing this? Okay, number one, dwell on what is true. Dwell on what is true. The word there has three implications. Being truthful, loving truth, and speaking truth. In other words, as those who have been saved by the truth of the gospel, as those who purposely, uh, excuse me, personally know the way, the truth, and the life, we hold the word of truth in our hands this morning, we're guided by the Spirit in truth. Truth should be ingrained in every single aspect of our lives. Lying and deception should be foreign to us. Slander and gossip should be unthinkable. Manipulating the truth to get what we want should be completely out of the question. Every decision in our life should be dictated by the Word of God and by the Spirit's teaching. Now, the world will say that's too restrictive. That's too narrow-minded. That's, that's too much. How could you possibly run your life by this book? This book was written so long ago, and we don't even know it's consistent. And they give us all kinds of arguments about how it can't possibly be right, contradicts itself, and on and on and on. You know what? This word is either truth or it's not. Make a decision. It says in John 17, 17, your word is truth. So it, either the Bible that you hold in your hand 
is the truth, is the word of God, is all we need for faith and practice, is everything that the Spirit has decided is important for us to know so we can live godly lives and be like Christ. Either it is that or it is complete rubbish. It is not partial. It is whole or nothing. There's no other option. And I think what's happened within Christianity that's a little disturbing is we've said, well, we're going to take the, some of the parts that we like, but, but we're going to marginalize the rest. We can't do that with the Word of God any more than we would have Jesus standing in front of us and say, well, Jesus, I'll take you 50% of the time, but the other 50% of the time, I'm going to go do my own thing. You go do your own thing and we'll be fine. You know why? Because Jesus is the Word. Jesus is the Word. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. In other words, you should value the Word of God and I should value the Word of God as much as we value Jesus because it's Him. So the Word is truth. And the world can tell us that that's restricted and the enemy can work really hard to try to redefine truth and to tell us that a man's not a man and a woman's not a woman and that marriage isn't what it's supposed to be and that Jesus only taught about love and tolerance. He never taught about repentance. But listen, if we're students of the word, we know all of that is a lie. You want to know what to believe? Get into the word. There's no other substitute. You want to know how to, how to handle all the stuff that's going on in the world and all the mess and all the redefinition and all the craziness. And it is craziness, isn't it? It is absolute craziness. You want to know how to handle that? Get into the Word. Notice that the placement of truth in the text, Holy Spirit, never does anything without intention. The placement of the word true comes first. Because if we're not walking in truth, the other seven are not going to take place. So, dwell on what's true. Second, quickly, dwell on what's honorable. Honor is kind of a lost concept from not holding doors to not having personal integrity to not having political integrity to, to being less about self-respect and about working hard and all the other things we've talked about. So, so when we hear, think on what's honorable, it's kind of an alien concept. But listen to what, word, what the word means. It means to be upright and ethical in our character so other people respect us and so they see a consistency between our convictions and our actions. Dwell on what is honorable. Dwell on what is upright. Dwell on what is ethical. Dwell on what is consistent with the word of God that if we claim to be believers, then we're going to live exactly like that. And then third, dwell on what is right. Dwell on what's right. Interesting word. By, by clearest definition, it means what's righteous. But there's a secondary definition. It also means what's innocent. Dwell on what is righteous and dwell on what is innocent. Now, we'd expect the first word from the Lord because he's perfect and he's holy and he calls us to be holy like him. But it's the second one that intrigues me. Because we are only to take into our minds, listen now, we're only to take into our minds what is innocent. We are only to walk in what is innocent. Now, that doesn't make any allowance for what's edgy or what's off color or what's questionable or for a mature crowd or whatever. It says we should be innocent. Our hearts should be, should be 
clean. We shouldn't be corrupted by things that are, that are not honoring and not righteous and not holy. And if we're seeking after righteousness and are filling our hearts with it, then, uh, then we, we need to be kind of intentionally inexperienced. And people would say, well, you're kind of naive. I'm good with that. I'm good with being naive. I'm so tired of what I see. I'm so tired of, of seeing just how deviant culture is. I'd like a little more naivete. I, I, I sometimes get jealous of my nine-year-old because of what he doesn't know. I don't like what I know at 50. I don't like the things that I'm constantly exposed to. I don't like having to quickly change the commercial if I'm watching a game because there's something that's just completely scandalous on. I don't like that. I'd love to be a little more intentionally inexperienced about the world. Dwell on what is right. Fourth, hand in hand, dwell on what is pure. This goes along with what's righteous because to be pure means to be free from carnality and to be modest. Free from carnality and modest. Purity is never partial. Purity is never incomplete. It's a standard of righteousness that doesn't make any allowance for sin or for worldliness. And that's what we're called to be as Christians. Let me give you a kind of a graphic example of this to wake you up a little bit because it's muggy in here. I, I don't know if I've used this illustration before. If I have, just, just run with me with it, okay? There was, a, there was a dad. I think this is a true story. If it's not, I'm sorry. There was a dad who, whose daughters were really kind of going down the wrong path. And they were worldly, and they were starting to get kind of immodest, and they were caught up in some bad things and just weren't living right. So one day, um, it, because they were kind of rationalizing, it's not a big deal, Dad, come on, we're growing up, and, and, and we've got to, you know, kind of be like this. This is what our friends are like, and it, it doesn't have an effect on us, Dad. We still know what you taught us, and, and, and we're okay. So one day, he made some brownies. Have you heard this illustration before? He made some brownies, and he gave the to them, and they're like, man, these are really good brownies. And after they had eaten a little bit, he said, well, I, I put some of the dog's dung in them. Just a little tiny bit. Just, just a touch. And as they're gagging and choking and spitting them out, they said, why would you do that? I mean, they're so outraged. And he said, would you like some more? They're like, are you crazy? What are you talking about? Why would you have done that? Why would you give us something that, that kind of polluted the brownies? He said, well, it's just a tiny little bit. They're like, but any little bit was too much. And he said, that's exactly the point. It's exactly the point. You think that you can be Christians and that you can have a little bit of impurity and that it really won't affect you. It won't affect your witness. It won't affect who you are. It won't affect your maturity. But girls, listen, think about what's in the brownies because that has corrupted all of it. You no longer want to have that. You no longer look at that and go, wow, those are going to be tasty because you know what's in it. And I don't know if he actually put it in or not. I can't remember from the story. doesn't matter because the point was made. When Paul says dwell on what is pure, he's not calling us to partial purity because that's an oxymoron. He's saying dwell on what is pure. Dwell on what is free from carnality. Dwell on what is modest. Dwell on what doesn't have any inkling of the world. 
Now, that's a hard standard. But it's what God calls us to. Every little bit of impurity corrupts us spiritually. So we're supposed to dwell on what is pure. Five, dwell on what is lovely. My last illustration was far from lovely, right? Everybody say amen. So it's not hard to get a picture of what this one means. Literally, it's anything that's acceptable and pleasing to the Lord. And we need to be very careful here as we think about this. Because the Christian world in the last 20 or 30 years has become very adept at redefining what's acceptable. Again, a de-emphasis on the word, a de-emphasis on literally taking the word as it speaks. There's been a lot of rationalizing, a lot of justifying, but we forget the second part of the definition. Dwell on what is lovely, not only what is acceptable, but what is pleasing to the Lord. The goal of our lives is not to see how much latitude we have to be free or or to do what seems okay to us. The goal, as we're told here in Philippians 4.8, is to preoccupy ourselves with what will bring joy and honor to the Lord and what will bring praise to him publicly and draw people to his grace. If our lives are doing that, we're effective. As my kids grow up and get older... They're they're starting to learn that they have their own opinion, that they have their own freedom. When Jacob goes to college in a couple years, he will be on his own. I've taught him. Julie's taught him. We've trained him in the way that he should go. And we pray that when he's older, he won't depart from it. He's been in church. He's heard the word of God. He knows what it is to pray. He knows what it is to worship. He knows all of that. But when he goes out on his own, there are going to be a lot of options. And a lot of people are going to tell him, well, this is tolerable, and this probably isn't really wrong, and and he's going to have the latitude to do that. But what he chooses won't necessarily please me. He may be able to defend it. He may be able to say, well, my friends are doing it. But we're the standard. When I grew up, I had a lot of freedom My dad was working hard. My mom was working hard. They were serving the church. And and I had a lot of freedom. And my parents trusted me. And you've met my parents. You met them last week. But I was a PK. They never once, I don't believe, in the 18 years I lived with them, they never once said, because you're a pastor's kid, you have to act that way. It was just an expectation of how I was raised. But they never said, be a PK. Because PKs didn't have bad reputations, right? But I lived in a constant fear of displeasing them and dishonoring the Lord and dishonoring their ministry because they had set a high standard for what is lovely, what is right, what is acceptable, what is pleasing the Lord. And and they basically said, you can do whatever you want. We can't stop you. But just remember what is pleasing to the Lord. Don't do it to impress us. Don't do it to defend our ministry. Don't do it because you're a PK. Do it because it's acceptable and pleasing to the Lord. And that stuck with me, and it still sticks with me. And it's how I'm trying to raise my kids and how Julie, along with me, we're raising our kids. What is acceptable and what is pleasing to the Lord? What is lovely? What a great word. I love the word lovely. Six, what's of good repute? 
being preoccupied with maintaining a respectable reputation. We carry the name of Jesus. We're ambassadors and witnesses for him. So are we living that way? Do people look at us and see us standing for the Lord? Do they see us defending to the Lord? Listen, if our heart and mind isn't filled with holiness, it's going to bear itself out. And if our heart and mind is not filled with holiness, our reputation is going to be inconsistent. And we're not only going to dishonor our own name, we're going to dishonor the name of the Lord. Proverbs 22.1 says, A good name is more precious than great riches. Your reputation, you only get one reputation. And I know people look at us, oh, he's such a good guy, or she's such a lovely woman, or boy, I love being around them. But, but more than that, we should want people to say, when I look at him, when I look at her, I see somebody that is just in love with Jesus Christ. I see somebody that just stands for their faith, that just loves to pray, that, that's so committed to Christ. They're, they're kind of weird, they're kind of odd, but you know what, there's something I respect about it, because they are completely given to Christ. Oh, if I get to the end of my life, it's the only thing I want said. Paul Rhodes loved Jesus Christ. I got a long way to go, but oh, I want that to be said. Paul Rhodes loved Jesus Christ. He was so committed, so sold out, so on fire for Christ. That's what good repute means. Number seven, quickly, dwell on what's excellent. Dwell on what's excellent. Now, this word's become very popular in Christianity, especially in the church growth movement, in the sense that it's kind of become... I would even suggest kind of a subtle idol where now the goal in many church services or ministry events is to perform it perfectly. And I use the word perform intentionally. To perform it perfectly. To, and I've heard this in churches. To, to be up to a Disney standard. To be up to a Broadway standard because that's what God's, God expects. And, and, and the way this plays out is that any mistakes are agonized over or, or, or just obsessed to the point that I've been in churches where I've sat in a two-hour staff meeting because one chord was missed or because one announcement was kind of misspoken and, and that was called a train wreck instead of it just being organic and human. I, I'm not perfect, everybody say amen, right? I am not perfect. Our services are not perfect. Sometimes we make mistakes. Paul and I were talking about it before the service because we're trying to recruit some people for tech. We don't always get it right. Sometimes the word's wrong. You know what? God doesn't call us to, to perfection in terms of performance because he never calls us to performance. There's not one word in Scripture that says perform. It says worship the Lord in spirit and in truth. Now, we don't want to distract people from the Lord. We don't want to dishonor the Lord. But the meaning of the word excellence, if you look back at the text, has nothing to do with production. It means moral goodness in thought, feeling, and action. In other words, simply put, it means to ingrain in your heart to be like Christ in everything you say and do. And that leads to number eight, dwell on what is worthy of praise. Not praising for ourselves, not looking for attention for ourselves, but praising the Lord, being obsessed with bringing Him glory. If our words and actions don't cause other people to know Christ 
and love Christ and praise Christ more, then we need to evaluate them. We need to look at them and say, why am I not drawing people to Christ? Why am I not honoring Christ in my words? Why am I not living for Christ in my actions? Because there has to be a root cause, and it comes back to verse 8. What's in our mind? What are we feeding our mind with? And that's really the question, as I close, that's really the question that comes out of these eight things. What are you feeding into your heart and mind? What is the diet of your heart and mind? When I lost a bunch of weight five years ago, I did so mostly by tracking every single bite of food. Trying to start doing that again because I need to lose some of the weight I gained back. But I tracked every bite. Anytime I went for a bite of food, I tracked it on my computer. It's tedious. It is annoying, but it's a really effective way to lose weight. Because as I did that, I realized how much I snack and how much I need to pay constant attention to my diet in order to maintain the discipline of feeding myself correctly. It's the only way I was going to be healthy. And I'm only using this as an example. I don't talk about myself much, but I'm only using an example because the parallels spiritually are easy to correlate. And as I analyzed, why do I snack so much? Why do I eat so much? Why am I constantly, constantly going for food? I realized that there are at least four definitive influences that worked against me. See if you relate to any of these in your own life. One was stress. I eat when I'm stressed. I eat when I'm emotionally wrung out. I eat when I'm tired. I eat because, I don't know, it just seems like the right thing to do. I eat, second of all, when I'm bored. When I have a void, when there's, when there's time, when I don't know what to do next, I eat to kind of entertain myself. Then I eat when I'm frustrated or angry. It's almost like a self-sabotage. Well, I'm so ticked off right now, I'm just going to make it worse. I'm just going to eat. And I'm not choosing, you know, asparagus at that point. And then fourth, I ate because I had cravings. For some reason, when I'm on a diet, and I've tracked this for the last 30 years, when I'm on a diet, I become very obsessed, and I mean obsessed, with pizza and brownies, and not the brownies I was talking about earlier. When I am on a diet, when I am trying to eat right, the things that my mind goes to are, wouldn't pizza taste yummy? There's not once when I was losing weight over a span of about six months where I craved broccoli. Not once. I like broccoli. Broccoli's pretty good, especially when you have a little cheese on it. But I never craved broccoli. I never said, boy, I want to sit down with a plate of raw broccoli. Mmm, tasty. Pizza. Now, pizza's good. Brownies, without the other stuff, brownies are so good. My mind desired, listen now, this is spiritual, my mind desired the things that were potentially most damaging to me that I've allowed myself to have in my life. So when I wanted the cravings, I would go back to those old habits. And if I fed those influences, if I fed those old habits, I failed in my diet. Just as we do spiritually, look back at verse 8 one more time, when we don't feed our heart and mind with what's true and honorable and righteous and pure and lovely. But when I tracked my diet, when I tracked the bites that I was taking, just as we're called here to track our spiritual diet, then the discipline became stronger and I became 
healthier, and I became more content. We'll talk about that in two weeks. And then, when I combined the discipline of tracking what went in with exercise, the weight dropped off. It just started dropping off. I'd get on the scale and be like, wow, another pound and a half, another two pounds. When I disciplined with what I took in with exercise, and I'm getting to that in a second, it worked. Now look back at verse 9 for a minute. The things you've learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things and the God of peace will be with you. Take this real quick, two minutes. We have learned these truths from the Spirit's indwelling and from the Word of God. We've received these truths. The word there means that we've joined them to our heart. So it's not just a concept. It's something we've embraced. If it's true, if we've really surrendered our hearts, we've received the word. And then we've seen and experienced these truths in our lives. So what do we do now? Look at the last word. He says, now practice these things. You know what that word means? It means exercise. Literally, it means Get to it, get busy, accomplish it, get to work. So he talks in verse 8 about what we take in, what goes into our mind, what we're feeding our heart and mind with. And then he says, once you've seen that and learned that and experienced that, now exercise, have a consistent diet of holiness and purity and whatever pleases and honors the Lord. And then exercise now what's in your heart and mind and live it out every day. And here's the promise that God gives us. When we do that, it says the peace of God will be with you. There's a cause and effect relationship between verse 8 and verse 9. When we fulfill verse 8, God fulfills verse 9. And he promises, and he can't break the promise. He says, I will provide you peace and security and deep contentment in your life that can't be shaken and can't be moved, and it will be certain. As verse 7 said, it'll be a peace that passes all understanding. You won't be able to comprehend it. God will so overflow us and fill us with his peace and security and contentment and joy that when we fill our minds with what pleases him, he will fill us with himself. And what a contrast to the chaotic and discontented grasping of our world this morning for anything that resembles joy or peace. Problem is the diet's wrong. The only answer is in the Lord. So we go back to what it says in Matthew. Are you hungering and thirsting after righteousness? It is the craving of our heart and mind this morning for whatever is true and whatever is honorable and whatever is pure, and whatever is holy, and whatever is of good repute, whatever is excellent, whatever is pleasing to the Lord, think on these things, dwell on these things, let these things be all that preoccupies your heart and mind. And we do that, peace of God will fill us, and we'll become content. 